My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it is your first time or if you were in the first couple times at Awakening, we're just so thankful that you're here. We're launching a brand new series today called At the Table, which I'll discuss a little bit more as we dive into the message because this topic is going to be about the tables that Jesus set up the tables that Jesus sat around, the kind of people that were around his community and his fellowship in order for us as a church to learn what communities can we form. Uh, You heard about groups. You heard about startup. These are all things for us to dive more deeply into life at Awakening, to form community, to form smaller groups, to form more intimate connections with the people around us because at some level, what we have here is awesome. And what we had last week is amazing. We have this large group. We have both services together, everybody together. But at some level, we don't know everyone here, nor will we know everyone here. We must form smaller communities, and we naturally do this. Wherever we go, at work, we naturally form smaller communities of small friendships. Departments within work become tight, right? In school, you, who you, uh, if you're in college, who you major with, you become close with that person because you end up taking the same classes. Large structures end up boiling down to small structures. We started practicing this in middle school. You remember middle school? Most of us have blocked it out. <laughs> a lot of therapy. Middle school was terrible. It was awful. But it was the first time you started to really break up into groups and friendship uh, circles, right? And if you remember, maybe lunch for you was traumatic, because at lunch, you broke up into different uh, sections, right? You, you, you had all different kinds of people, jocks, nerds, geeks, drama kids, rich kids, poor kids, skaters, musicians. Everybody kind of paired off into their own little small groups. And you knew who, we, we did that because we could better understand who we were. Because we were trying to figure out who we were. Because we were 12. We didn't know, you, you don't know anything about yourself when you're 12. And you're just like, I, if I can just know this, that I like to play a guitar or I like to play football, then I'll just know that about myself. And we began to identify with ourselves as, as the people around us. But more importantly, we started to know who they were. And that word started to develop in our minds. Them, they, the cool kids, the popular kids, the nerds, the jocks, whoever they were to you, you were on the outside of them and they were on the outside of you. And that was partly how you paired things up. I, I went to a Catholic school, so this was more hilarious because like we had uniforms and uh, you were never really able to express yourself through your clothing, you know? And so you had to find cool ways to do that, like on your binder. I don't know if any of you remember this, your stickers <laughs> or things that you had on your binder was like what identified you. At Catholic school, it was like all the more important. And we had one day a month, last Friday of every month, where we had free dress day. And you thought about your free dress outfit the whole month. <laughs> You're like, do I wear the Emmett Smith jersey or the Deion Sanders jersey? And you thought about that for 30 days until the free dress day came and you were able to express yourself to identify who you were, the group you were in, and then who they were. And we end up, as we grow older, not growing out of that, strangely. Because the people we like most are the people most like us. Let me repeat that. The people we like most are the people most like us. We've just moved from the middle school lunch table to the internet. On the internet, we start to form sub-communities of people that talk like us, think like us, act like us, so we can follow certain accounts and people that identify and, and, and uh, you know, with the same views that we identify with. 
Like at the start of the internet, we thought that the internet would be this great democratization of society. We thought that at the internet, we could all sit at the same lunch table, that we could mess with the power structures and the voiceless would have voices and we could all on social media become one lunch table and all talk together. And then that became a terrible place. And so we started to siphon off into little communities. We started forming friendships around us. We have formed profiles and internet uh, you know, websites that garner a certain following. And what was once thought to be a great democratization and great like leveling of the playing field has actually become more bifurcating in American society. We've just grown up from the lunch table and moved it to the internet. The opposite has actually happened. From its very start, the internet has been used the same way as middle school lunch tables. We just become like ourselves on the internet in our own little space just through social media. The British journalist John Ronson spent years investigating the stories of people whose lives were ruined on the internet uh, through public shaming. People who were attacked by certain small groups of internet trolls and destroying people's lives. And in his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, he wrote this long study uh, about all these people in their lives and what has happened to them. And at the end of the book, in the paperback version, he has this appendix about what he has learned after he, lear- he went through this whole study. And in it, he interfaces with some of his best friends. And one of his friends is Adam Curtis, who's the documentary filmmaker. And Adam writes him an email, and John publishes it in his book. He says this. The tech utopians present the internet as a new kind of democracy. It isn't. It's the opposite. It locks people off in the world they started with and prevents them from finding out anything different. They get trapped in a system of feedback reinforcement. Twitter passes around lots of, uh, lots of information around, but it tends to be the kind of information that people know that others in their particular network will like. A lot has been written on this. When we hear stuff like this, though, it's very easy for us to denounce the problem outside of us onto the tech companies. We blame Facebook, we blame Twitter, just like we blame middle school. But the problem is, if you look at any point in human society where people segregate, you'll just find that's every human society is constantly segregating different people. And when I even use that word, you think about the worst offenses of segregation, whether it be in America or in a foreign country where segregation was an issue, a major issue with ethnicity and racial uh, segregation. That See, the thing is, we want it to be a problem in the past, like middle school or the 1960s civil rights movement, or we want to blame the internet. We want to blame everything out there. We want to put it all out there. But, oh, what if the problem was us? What if we were the ones who just naturally, in our own selfish spaces, segregate, siphon off into different communities. We try to make the problem out there because here's the deal. The church is one of the worst offenders of this. The most segregated hour, it has been said, in, in America is Sunday morning. That we actually go to church, whether it be in certain ethnic and racial uh, segregation or style and what we like We think consumeristically, and it splits us off into different kinds of churches. And simply, we form what Christina Cleveland's brilliant sociologist who wrote the book Disunity in Christ. She says, we separate people in our minds as good Christians and bad Christians. And we, of course, are the good Christians. We've always been the good Christians. So you, you see what I'm saying? It's not about lunch tables. It's not about the tech. It's not about the past. It's about us, unfortunately. 
The bad news is that it's about us, that we, no matter what level you're at, you might be better or worse than other people. That doesn't matter. At the end of the day, there's something in the human heart that wants to get around the people that are most like us and keep people that are different from us far away. But the church actually has a bigger vision for community. The church has a bigger vision for what it means to be together, and that's why we're starting this series at the table. In Jesus' day, eating with people around the table, it was called table fellowship. Table fellowship was a practice that meant everything in that day. And it, was, it could be boiled down to this. Who you ate with was who you were. If you ate with the religious elite, you were the religious elite. If you ate with tax collectors, you were tax, a tax collector. If you ate with politicians, you were a politician. And if you ate with the poor, you were poor. And if you ate with a sinner, you were a sinner. And Jesus practiced table fellowship in an outstanding and surprising way, a way that caused people to question his authority and question who he was because they were like, wait a second, if you're eating with those people, does that mean that's who you are? You see, the church's vision for community starts with this table that Jesus would set. And from there, the church became the most promiscuous and strange community filled with all kinds of people across all kinds of ethnic background and social status, Historians have been writing about it ever since. But unfortunately, we've lost a sense of that vision in America. And our consumeristic mentality and our racial bias and our own personal biases have separated us from this vision of the table, and we must come back to it. And so would you sit at the table with me? If you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We'll sit at the table together with Jesus and see what we can learn. Let's take a seat. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of the day, the people who held the biblical interpretation of the time, when they saw this, They said to Jesus' disciples, his followers, they said, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, Jesus, he said this, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We need help understanding this table and what Jesus has set for us. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are people who desire to be separated from each other. We confess that we want to be around people that are most like us. And we repent this morning and ask you, God, to teach us and instruct us how we might live a different life, and how your power and your cross might change how we think. And so we relax our minds and we open our hearts to receive your word. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. At the table of Jesus, we're going to understand that the table is not just open to what we would call good people or what we would call bad people, but the table is open to people. 
And what we hear in Jesus' words in these, this short passage of Matthew 9 is we hear his direct invitation, his surprising company, and his devastating diagnosis. Let's take these one by one. First, his direct invitation. Jesus has a very direct invitation. If you look at verse 9, it says that as Jesus passed on from there, he's moving from one place to another, he sees this man named Matthew, and he says to Matthew, follow me. That's the invitation. It's very direct. He says, get up, get out of your tax booth, and come and follow me. The invitation is direct. But notice where Jesus leads Matthew first. He says, follow me, Matthew. And he takes him directly to a table to sit. Jesus does not invite his followers to do anything first. He invites them to recline with each other. He doesn't invite them into social activism right away. He doesn't invite them into a set of teachings. He invites them to a community. He invites this young man, Matthew, into a table. The initial invitation to Christianity is not isolation, but community to the table. This is the first place Matthew is taken. Look at this quote from the New Testament scholar Joseph Hellerman from Biola University. He says this in his book, When the Church Was Family. God's intention is not to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue towards personal enlightenment. It's not just another avenue towards your own personal enlightenment. It's not another avenue towards your own self-realization. It is an avenue to a family, to a community. No one follows the real Jesus into an isolated spirituality. It doesn't exist Across all of the history of the church and the New Testament, only in recent times has it become something where we follow Jesus into isolation. I see one, pastorally, I see one of three things happen to people in America. The first is that they commit to Jesus alone, they say. It's not that they think that they're not a part of Jesus. They just say, hey, I'm just with Jesus. Or Jesus and I, it's a private faith that I have, Chris. So I don't want to commit to the church, I don't want to commit to this, I don't want to commit to other people. It's just a private thing that I deal with, that I do. It doesn't affect my work, it doesn't affect my relationships, it doesn't affect my family, it just affects this kind of ethereal space that we call our spiritual life, which is, in my opinion, somewhat of a heresy. There is no spiritual life, you just have a life. It's either God's or not. It's either dedicated to Christ or not. It's either walking in obedience to God or not. It's a whole life, and we've separated it. It's not that, like, you'll hear us say this at Awakening. It's not that Christianity is difficult to do alone. It's impossible to do alone. Like, some of you think you're doing Christianity right now. Like, you think you're a part of the Christian walk, but you're so far from any other Christian or any other table, any other community that actually, biblically, you're not really in the Christian faith. You can't uh, can't say yes to Jesus' invitation and decline his dinner invite. It's the same invite. You're you're going to the same space. I see people commit to Jesus alone. Secondly, I also see uh, commitment to Jesus and then like another community. Right, so like we commit to Jesus, but where we get our community is through like our social gatherings, our, our, our work, Um, our own families even, and so we separate ourselves from Christ's community because we have our own. So we're not a part of the community of Christ, we're a part of the community of Chris, or community of whatever your name is. You form your own communities and and separate yourself from Christ's community, from his, his own church. 
The last thing I see is I, I see people commit to Jesus in a Sunday service, calling it church. Like, this is what I mean. There's a weakness to what we're doing here, okay? There's a strength. There's a huge strength for the church to gather, for us to sing, for us to participate in communion together. It's a, there's so much happening here that's good, but it's not complete. That when you commit to Jesus and a Sunday service, you're not committing to the church, because the church isn't a Sunday gathering of people. It's a people that you commit to. It's a group of people that you say, I'm here with you for life or for as long as I'm here. As long as I'm in San Jose, as long as I'm in Silicon Valley, I'm with you. And you commit to the church in that way. And so let me ask you, have you accepted Jesus' full invitation? It's a direct invitation to a table. Have you accepted it? Who are your people? that you're meeting regularly with? Are you participating in the community life at Awakening or at some church, right? If it's not Awakening, be a part of some church that you're going to, that you're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come down to the group of sm- a small group of people. I'm not just gonna settle for a Sunday service because at some level, we do a turn and greet and you can meet people here and there, but that ain't the real thing. The real thing is about regularly participating with a small group of people that you're growing in Jesus with. It's about sitting around his table every week together. We're in rows right now. Where are you gathering around a table? Where are you gathering in a circle? Well, how will you know that you're at Jesus' table? Maybe some of you are like, well, I don't really know where I'm at. Am I at the table? Am I not? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, Jesus is presiding over that table, okay? And what I mean is, do you gather with people every week that the only reason you would ever gather is because all of you know Jesus? Let me ask that again. Are you gathering with a group of people that the only reason you're getting together is Jesus? Right? Like you would maybe get together in another way or another fashion, but like really the reason you're together is Jesus is the host of that table, metaphorically speaking, right? But you're gathering every week and going, hey, the one reason we're here is because the host. The one reason we're here is we all got invited by Jesus. We're all here because of him. The other thing, the other reason you'll know you're at Jesus' table is the second larger point I have, which is in this text, we not only see his direct invitation, but his surprising company. You'll also know you're at Jesus' table when the company is quite strange. You're going to be like, these people are nothing like me. I have none of the same interests. They're different ages than me. They're super young. They're super old. They make me feel old. Whatever. You're just going to find yourself surprised. Because look at Jesus, it says in verse 10, he reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining at the table. In Luke's version of this account, we're reading Matthew's. In another gospel narrative account, the author Luke describes it this way, that Levi, this is using Matthew's Jewish name, we'll get to that importance in a second, made him... Uh, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes, the, the religious elite of the day, they grumbled, it says, at his disciples. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why have this surprising company? These two categories, need a little, we need a little unpacking with them, don't we? Tax collectors and sinners, foreign to the American mind in some ways. Tax collectors, many have said, well, it's like the IRS. Yes, but it's worse. 
In America, we have like tax structures and percentages and laws around taxes. It was like a free-for-all in the Roman Empire. You see, the Jewish people were living under occupation of the Roman government. And the Roman government, being the occupying ruling force of the people of Israel, were able to tax their citizens with whatever discretion, uh, discretionary fund they desired. There was no percentage. It was just knocking on a door, give us money. It was any amount of money. They could come and they could take everything from you or they could take a small percentage and it would vary all the time, which made it all the more frustrating, which caused the tension between the Jewish people and the Roman government was that the Jewish people were working hard and they were tax- being taxed and giving taxes to Caesar. And, and, and Caesar was never really their king. It was their ruling king. Matthew is in an even worse case. And this is what we get to in his story. He's called Levi in, in Luke chapter five, which I showed you. Matthew is in a worse scenario. His given name was Levi, meaning he was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. And being Jewish, he had this kind of betrayal in his identity. You see, other Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they would see Matthew as a betrayer of the Jewish people because he was a tax collector. He wasn't collecting for the Jewish people. He was collecting for Caesar. And he was probably taking money from the Pharisees and scribes at the time. And so Matthew is even worse than just a Roman tax collector. He was a Jewish tax collector collecting on Rome's behalf. Jesus associated with such people, with greedy people, with people who had betrayed their identity, with people who had moved far from their home, turn their back on, quote-unquote, their people. Jesus associated with that person. He also says this word sinner, which is a very uh, convoluted word today, right? To the scribes and Pharisees, when they utter that word, you see, in our story in Matthew chapter 9, the word is said by two people. It's said by the Pharisees, and it's said by Jesus. And the word means two different things to those two different people. To the Pharisees, the word meant one who walked outside of their own interpretation of Scripture. In other words, the people they deemed as a sinner. Jesus later says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And he didn't mean, I'm only coming to bring the people who are outside of the hermeneutic of the religious elite. No, no, no. To Jesus, a sinner was anyone outside of the will of God. Anyone who was walking outside of God's will. But Jesus seemed to associate with both types of sinners the morally incorrupt, and the spiritually distant. Jesus associated with all kinds of people. To Jesus, sinner was a more deeper offense, and yet he still associated himself with such people. All the characters in this story, we have the Pharisees, the scribes, we have Jesus' own disciples, we have sinners, we have tax collectors. All of these people seem to be wanting to move and segregate into different uh, groups. They seem to want to cut up the world into good people and bad people, but Jesus doesn't. The surprising company of Jesus is that he's collected what the world would call bad people right next to what he would call his disciples, his followers, those who followed him closely. So it seems that Jesus doesn't just associate with good people. He doesn't just associate with bad people. It's that he doesn't even see the world that way. That Jesus doesn't see the world as good people and bad people. He sees people, strangely. 
We don't form tables like this, though. This is, this is what I mean. Jesus does. How did he see people? Because I think in the way that he saw people, it would help us understand how we might be able to better form our tables in some way. And that leads me to the final point, which is Jesus giving a devastating diagnosis of human society, a devastating diagnosis of the human condition. You see, this closing, if we hear it for what it is, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a pick-me-up. It, it's not like a, a cheery verse. But in it cuts to the truth of what it means to be a human being and maybe what it means to follow Jesus at his table. Look at this. this the Pharisees saw this, right, in verse 11. The disciples, they said to the disciples, right, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? And it, Jesus says, when, it says, when he heard this, Jesus like overheard the Pharisees saying this. He said, those who are well, like the healthy, they don't need a physician. They don't need a doctor. But those who are sick. And then offensively, he says in 13, go and learn what this means. Which, by the way, to, a, to an interpreter of scripture, that's offensive. They're like, well, I've written books on that verse, bro. Because Jesus is actually quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, an Old Testament scripture. So he's throwing an Old Testament scripture at an Old Testament scholar saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what it means. It's penetrating. And the dialogue, uh, it, it, even, it even gets harsher when we understand what these two words mean. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then he comments on that scripture and he says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. These two phrases will help us get to Jesus' diagnosis. Let's take the last one actually first. The, Jesus came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus is playing into our own self-aggrandizement. Like how we so quickly think the best of ourselves and the worst of others. That we think we are the righteous and others are the sinners. Maybe we don't use that harsh of terms, but have you ever noticed how much grace you extend to yourself and how little you extend to others? You have standards for other people that you don't have for yourself. Or the standards that you throw on other people when you violate them, you play to your motive. Well, I meant well. Well, I didn't mean that. See how much grace we satisfy for ourselves when we don't give it to other people? That's naturally where we go. That's what Jesus is trying to get at, our own self-aggrandizement. We have standards for other people. And so what we end up doing is surrounding ourselves with people who are like us. We surround ourselves with people who are similar to us because we believe if we're good and we surround people who are like us, then they're good. And as we do that, this is all very subtle, we fall under this very strange um, presupposition, which is this. We assume we would be able to tell who's a good person and a bad person. And you're like, well, Chris, I can. Like, there's really bad people in the world. Yes, there is. But there's also a level of morality that our minds can't really construct that well. Have you thought about this? Have you thought that maybe you are not the best person to decide what is good and what is bad and who is good and who is bad? Have you ever thought about that? Just consider for one second that you might not be the best at that, 
Okay, just hold that for one second. You might not be the best judge at who's a good person and who's a bad person. Scripture tells us there are categories. Scripture does talk about the righteous and the unrighteous, but Scripture never really tells us that we would be able to know the difference. It's actually God who judges. It's God who places the righteous and the unrighteous, although we like to think we could be the host of the table, that we could sit on the throne. And that we could decipher who are the good Christians and who are the bad Christians. But two dominant reasons would kick us off that throne. One is life is not that simple. What I mean is, yes, there are really morally reprehensible people. That's true. But life is not filled with super morally uh, reprehensible people and super morally good people. There's actually a huge area in between, like the serial killers and the people who devote their lives to charity. There's like a lot of people in between. And, and, and you, you think you can decipher the gray area? Scripture will have you take a step back from that. Secondly, I don't think all people in the world, myself especially included, has been sufficiently tested to be a good person or a bad person. I've been reading these these books by this writer, Rachel Cusk. She's a novelist in the UK. And she has this book outline where she she basically, nothing really happens, but it's a brilliant book. She like travels all around Greece having conversations with people, hearing people's stories and just like having these interesting conversations. It's just a brilliantly written book. And in one case, her protagonist has this line that she says to another character. She says, I said that I thought most of us didn't know how truly good or truly bad we were. And most of us would never be sufficiently tested to find out. I get it. You you might be a good person. But let's take you and put you into deep material poverty. Do you think you'd still be a good person? Let, Let me take you and just put you in 13th century China. Do you think you'd be the same morally good or bad person, you see so much of who you are is dependent upon your circumstances and your worldview that you can't separate yourself from it. Just pick you up and put you somewhere else, you'd probably be a worse person. It's like if the apocalypse happens and you'd be like stealing stuff, you know? (laughs) You're like, I'm not a thief. I don't know if you've been sufficiently tested. You might be a way worse person than you think you are. You probably are. I know I am. I've been so privileged in my life that if I was put in any other circumstance, I'd probably be way worse. Like I had a level of comfort growing up that many people across the world don't. Just put me in another position, I'd probably be an idiot. Way more. Like you look at pastors, you go, oh, they're a good person. Well, probably, but also probably not. Like we are not the best gauge of who is good and who is bad. So Jesus doesn't take us and put us into categories or tell us the categories. He puts us all into one category, all at the mercy of God. That's why he says, I didn't come for the people who don't think they need help. I came for the sick, for those who know whether they think themselves to be a good person or a bad person, they know deep in their heart they need my mercy. Because apart from another circumstance, they're probably a worse person. And only from my grace will I change them. My friend uh, Bill, he, he, he served with me in 
San Francisco when I was working there for two years, and we were working in the inner city, Tenderloin District. He came, uh, Bill is a retired VP of Macy's. He had billions of dollars under him for a while. Incredibly successful businessman. Did venture capital for a while, retired very early in his 50s. He was invited on a short-term missions trip to come hang out with us in the inner city. He came down for a week, and he, he'll tell this story way better. I wish he was here so he could tell it. Tells it better than me. But he comes on this short-term mission trip, and he said, Chris, you know what my plan was? I'm going to go serve the poor people, but I'm going to hide in the kitchen. I'm going to just like be in the kitchen so I don't have to talk to anybody because I don't want to talk to homeless people. I don't want to talk to addicts. I just want to make food feel good about myself and then leave. Well, our ministry doesn't really work that way, so we were like, hey, come knock on a door, you know? So we, like, go into these apartment buildings, we'd knock on doors, uh, and we would just give people food and then pray for them and ask people how they were doing and seeing if they needed help. And Bill, one day in his missions trip, in his week with us, this is six, seven years ago, he encounters this man named Lefty at the Crescent Manor. The Crescent Manor is a single resident occupancy, SRO, apartment building in the inner city, a lot of impoverished people on welfare at various capacities. And he goes to the Crescent Manor, he knocks on a door, and he meets Lefty. And he's start doing his best to talk to Lefty, and Lefty's drunk, and uh, he's, he's out of his mind a little bit. But he starts telling a little bit of his story. And Lefty's story is that he went to MIT and graduated at the top of his class and had an incredible business life for a short while until he spiraled into addiction until he fell into his vices and squandered his money and found himself in San Francisco in the poorest neighborhood with no money and no friends. And when Bill tells this story, he says he was looking at Lefty and God spoke to him the way that God speaks to us when we meet those who are materially poor. God spoke to him and said, Bill, apart from my grace in your life, this is you. In other words, you want to make yourself different from Lefty, but I won't allow that. Because apart from different circumstances, Bill, you're there. Apart from my tremendous mercy that I've shown you in your life, this changed Bill's whole life, his whole trajectory. Bill and his wife, Patty, ended up moving their whole retirement and leveraging it to serve the inner city. They worked on our staff, and they're still on staff there, as volunteers. They're four days a week driving in from the Silicon Valley to the inner city to dedicate to the people of the Tenderloin because they realize there is no difference between the people of the Tenderloin and us, apart from God's mercy. All of us are subjected beneath the weight and mercy of God. There is not one of us who is outside of that or above it. And we cannot, in our own experience, see ourselves that way unless the veil is lifted. And God has been gracious to some to lift the veil to understand that there's only mercy between us and other people, which is why Jesus says that other phrase he says. He says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, I, this is God speaking, Jesus speaking, the God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, like Bill on that missions trip to the Tenderloin, a lot of us believe that maybe we're not great people, but we could make great sacrifices for God and he would love us. 
We want to be a faithful Christian, a good person. We want to be politically correct, socially conscious. And because of our sacrifice, maybe we could sit at the table until we actually see face-to-face the actual community of Jesus. That sacrifice is not the prerequisite to his table. That being a good Christian is not the prerequisite to sitting there. That even being a good person is not the prerequisite to sitting there. All of us, no matter who you are, where you were born, what class, what ethnicity, cultural background, religious life, you and I sit at the God's mercy for life and salvation and everything. That's why we commit to each other in community. Because when I look at you and you look at me, we both know we're at God's mercy. You see, the only prerequisite for sitting at the table with Jesus is to be certain that you don't belong there in the first place. There's no other access point to Jesus other than saying, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's the only place we can access him. It's not that Jesus excludes us, but we exclude us. So it's not that the prerequisite is like Jesus excluding us. It's that when we lack humility, we exclude ourselves from the table, like the Pharisees. They're sitting on the outside of the table pointing. Why does your teacher associate with such people? You see, if they were to just have the humility to understand they needed the same mercy as the tax collectors and sinners, they'd be at the table. But the truth is, we exclude ourselves from the table. You cannot think of yourself as superior to others because upon meeting Jesus, he will destroy your superiority. When you meet Jesus, he will wreck any type of pride that you have in your life. And for some of us, it takes a lot longer, but he still is slowly destroying the pride in your life. Many of you need to get past your small, insignificant issues with the church of sitting back behind community and pointing at it and critiquing it. You need to get over your insecurities and start to understand that you need humility to access Jesus. That humility, that your own pride is keeping you from the community of Christ. But so long as you sit back and become a critic of the church, you will also miss miss the church's king. So long as you sit back and make a critique of all the different ways this church is doing the right thing or the wrong thing, you'll miss out on the church itself. You can do life alone, and you'll find yourself as exactly that, alone. Humility accesses us, God, and others. That's why Jesus says, I desire mercy. I want you to know my mercy. That no matter what, my great love for you is available. Mercy is about not getting what you deserve. What you and I deserve, this is what mercy means. What you and I deserve is to live in segregated, isolated societies because we're that kind of people. We deserve the world we've been given. And yet, God through Jesus and his church offers us grace and mercy to sit at the table with people we would never sit at the table with. We are privileged to sit with God's church. We are privileged to know people who are different from our cultural background. Who, have, who, who grew up in a different ethnic background than we did, who, who grew up in a different religious background than we did. They grew up charismatic, you grew up fundamentalist, you get to sit at the table of Jesus. You grew up in the city, they grew up in the suburbs, you sit at the table of Jesus. You're Asian, 
you're white, you're black, we all sit at the table of Jesus. Because all of us are at the mercy of God. Why can Jesus say this line? Why can God say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Doesn't every God in every place have some type of prerequisite to come to the table to give some kind of sacrifice? Jesus can say this because he knew he, he was the sacrifice to be given. He doesn't need your sacrifice because he's giving it for you. He doesn't need your demonstration of worship because he was the final demonstration of worship. We get to worship and sacrifice out of the work he has already done, which is why he can say, I don't desire sacrifice. I just desire you to know my mercy. On the cross, when Jesus was dying, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was abandoned and sacrificed so that we could be brought in and celebrated. The reason Jesus can say, I do not desire sacrifice is because he knew he would sacrifice on our behalf. And so joining Jesus' table, friends, embracing his community is not about joining a diverse social club, a more woke internet, or a more accepting lunch table. It's about a small group of people coming together around one dominant reality. We cannot save ourselves no matter how much we sacrifice. We can only be saved by embracing the mercy of God in Christ. And so my invitation to you now is to his table, quite literally. Before us and in the back, we have communion tables. And you see, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples around another table. And when the meal was happening, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body broken for you. Do this, when you eat this, do this in memory of me. And likewise, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and drink of it. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Take this, do this in remembrance of me. And today, you get to come to the table and take and eat and remember why you're here. It's not because of anything you did. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because all of us have come to the mercy of God and said, God, give me grace, give me mercy. The only reason I'm here is not because of the sacrifice I've done, but because of the sacrifice you've done. And that will transform the way we not just look at God, but the way we look at each other, the way that we see one another, and the more dedication we can have towards community and life at the table. Let me pray. God, we need you. We're at your mercy. Lord, everything that we have has been given to us by you. And so, God, as we take of communion, as we partake in your supper, Lord, teach us what it means to receive your mercy. Lord, we repent as a church for the ways that we have separated ourselves. And at awakening, we put a stake in the ground and we say, Lord, we are not segregating. We are not becoming our own little isolated individuals. Lord, we want to sit at your table. 
And so teach us, God, what that means. God, push us into community. God, push us to your table. But Lord, fill us this morning with your great love and your great mercy. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.